Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, I recorded a conversation with my friend Jacob, talking about everything going on right now with Israel and Hamas there in the Middle East between uh, Israel and the Gaza Strip. So I hope this is a conversation that helps you all. I know a lot of people are talking about this right now, but Theon Money is an economics podcast, and I don't know how many people are talking about it from an economic standpoint. So I hope this is something that interests you all and benefits you all and helps you to think about it. And there's something I briefly mentioned in the episode. I just want to reiterate here, or rather, since even though I'm recording this later, it's going to come to your ears first. I guess the first time I mentioned it to you will be the time it's getting reiterated. But just be careful with this and everything else about hearing or believing what you hear on the news. I mean, many of y'all probably already knew to be careful with that before 2020, at least to some degree. And you're now way more cautious about believing what you hear on the news than you are than you were before 2020. And so I just want to be careful with this, Um, you know, the stuff going on with uh, Israel and Hamas. I'm sure both sides are trying to get out their fair share of propaganda. And then the news actually is seemingly taking Hamas's side in the name of intersectionality and the Jews being the oppressors somehow. At some point on theonomy, I think I'll do an episode talking about intersectionality slash critical theory and theonomy, but we'll, we'll talk about that more then. I just want to say on a side note with that, though, that we're told Christians are anti-Semitic so often by people on the left. A couple of years ago, I even literally saw the claim that not looking at porn is anti-Semitic. Yet now we have people on the left going around like chanting to kill the Jews, but apparently that's not anti-Semitic somehow. So things are crazy. Be careful what you hear on the news. Um, and uh, I hope you all learn from uh, what I say in this episode. All right, everyone, I am here this week, and I am uh, recording an episode with my friend uh, Jacob about uh, everything going on right now in the Middle East that people have been talking about for several weeks now with Israel and Hamas and, you know, Israel versus Palestine, Israel versus Hamas, everything that people are wanting to talk about right now. But we're going to be trying to take a little bit more of an economic focus on it. But before we get into that too much, I want to let Jacob take a moment to introduce himself. Hi, my name is uh, Jacob Holman. I'm uh, friends with Jeremy, and I graduated from uh, Liberty University recently with a bachelor's in political science. Uh, The specific degree is politics and policy. So um, I've been looking at the stuff and uh, was thinking that nobody's really talking about the economics of it. So I was like, hey, we should we should look at doing an episode on this. And there's there's a lot of stuff that's going on that we can um, comment on and think about and kind of help Christians to see the the economic side of what's going on. Yeah, and I I do get why 
not a lot of people have really thought about the economics so far because when there are literally people getting killed, like the one side Hamas has attacked Israel, and then the other side Hamas is basically using civilians as shields, putting the Israelites fighting back in really difficult situations as far as fighting back is concerned. Yes, those are very tragic things, and I can understand wanting to talk about the civilians who are of course, we believe in total depravity. No one's innocent in that sense, but innocent in the sense of they do not have an active part in this conflict being injured or even killed. And we kind of want to focus on that a little bit more than uh, the economic side of it. But at the end of the day, economics does hurt people. I mean, when it came to 2020, the economic loss of uh, the lockdowns caused many people to possibly starve to death who were already on the brink of a uh, barely making ends meet and that pushed them over the edge so economics does hurt people economics is important and so by focusing on that in this episode we're not trying to take away in any way from the tragedies happening to people right now or have happened to people over the last several weeks a lot of people have already talked about that and so rather than regurgitate what other people have already said we want to take a little bit of a different approach that more focuses on the theme of theonomony as a podcast right and on that, I think uh, one of the things that we should do, uh, especially since this is something that does grieve the heart of God, uh, we really should be focusing on praying um, both for the the state of Israel and the people that are there, but also for the hostages that are still uh, being held hostage, and then um, praying also for uh, the rest of what's going on in Gaza, just because there's there is so much and a lot of us really can't do much of anything physically um but we can definitely offer prayers and that it could be something to pray about as well this could be a great opportunity for uh christians to go and share the gospel in a terrible situation uh, and bring something good about through that to help redeem the situation um, and I know Theana money is all about redeeming stuff. So yeah. uh, we want to make sure that um, that's our focus, but we shouldn't, uh, we can hate evil, but we should, uh, we should desire that evil be overcome with good as scripture says. Yeah. And a quick note on that, as far as praying for them, we also need to make sure we're praying for the Christians that are stuck on this in both sides, the Christian Jews that are probably hated by many of their fellow ethnic Jews who do not believe in Christ, who reject Christ as the Messiah. They call him Yeshu, not Yeshua, meaning may his name be blotted out to mock Christ. And then you have the Palestinian Christians, and they have the difficulty of, uh, you know, depending on where they are, like all the different horrible things that Muslims do to Christians, making them pay jizya, uh, claiming they blasphemed Muhammad so they they can just get them killed when they didn't know such thing, all kinds of things like that. And when they already had dif difficult lives with persecution two months ago, now it's just that much harder with everything going on. Right. Uh, so a couple of things to keep in mind, or actually uh, quite a few things to keep in mind as we're, as we go into this uh, situation is that it's a developing story. There's a lot of things that are constantly changing. Um, and what was true of uh, events yesterday may not be true of events uh, today or tomorrow, um, just because that's the nature of combat and the nature of war is that um, things can change very fast. And uh, if we also kind of like what Jeremy was saying, if we tried to cover everything that's in this topic, it would spiderweb out very quickly. 
and then also kind of like what we were talking about with praying, we want to make sure that um, we, the, the fog of war makes things very difficult to know uh, what is true and what isn't. So we need to make sure that we're reading scripture, that we're actively praying for wisdom, um, and that our heart is set on the things of God rather than on the things of the earth. And so we want to make sure that we are actively seeking God to glorify him in that rather than um, just going off of what we hear on CNN or Fox News or Al Jazeera or whatever your news outlet is. We want to make sure that um, we're staying focused on Christ in this. Yeah. Don't just believe whatever the uh, big media organizations tell you, especially in the age of knowing that deep fakes are out there and are possible. We want to be careful even sometimes with what we think is legitimate video and making sure we're not watching a deep fake. Right. And even the the fact that this, in addition to this being like a physical war, there's also an information war that's taking place. Um, meme warfare has gone kind of crazy. Um, but you have to keep in mind that both sides have interests in the messages that they're putting out. So they're also, in a sense, politically driven, not necessarily in a bad thing or in a bad way, but like, it's very clear that when somebody releases a message uh, from either of the sides that they are doing it to accomplish a particular, uh, to achieve a particular outcome in the information war that's going on, which is why you see a lot of international protests going on with pal uh, like for the Palestinian people and stuff like that. And then you have a bunch of the pro-Israel stuff and you have um, the reports that are coming out from the uh, Israeli government, um, that all of this stuff comes with a particular angle in mind from the person who's putting out that information and uh, helping to drive whatever rhetoric it is. So um, it's just another layer to keep in mind as we're uh, trying to sort through what's being put out into the media and all the more of the reason why we need to make sure that we're keeping our eyes on Jesus. Yeah. And then a couple other things we wanted to say at the outset before getting into the economic side of it is just very briefly touch on the, the theological and the historical aspects of this. Uh, very briefly want to touch on this because as like a partial preterist, uh, you know, holding to Reformed Baptist, covenant theology, uh, being post-millennial, I could probably spend 30 minutes talking about theology as it relates to uh what's going on with Israel right now and how it doesn't mean the rapture is going to happen tomorrow and stuff like that. But I more want to just defer on that to the that episode of Apologia recently I mentioned. If you really want to get in detail on some stuff, you can uh, do that. Listen to them. If you want to ask me questions, you can always message me on one of the Theana Money socials or email theanamoney at gmail.com. And um, basically just uh, suffice it to say, I don't think this means that the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. I am not dispensational premillennial. I do think that the fact that Israel, after almost 2,000 years of not being a nation, came back together and formed a nation is important, but I think it will be important in the future as it relates to eschatology, because I do think Romans 11 teaches that at some point in the future, there will be a revival among ethnic Jews so that nearly every Jew alive at this point in time will be a Christian, and therefore you can say all Israel will be saved. But right now, Israel is just as wicked as America, if not more so, with their LGBTQ pride parades there, just like we have here. And they are not, they are not by and large believers in Christ right now. They still have a veil over their eyes.
but we would we do pray towards that end that they come to faith in Christ and pray towards the end of that future down the road where almost every Jew will be saved. So that's kind of the theological backing of it. And then the historical one, for more detail, uh, Dr. Aaron Rock that I mentioned did a good episode talking about this and giving dates. And uh, basically, when it comes to uh, the modern state of Israel, the reason that specific land is so important to Israel is this is the land that the Jewish person, uh, his uh, like 20 times great grandfather lived uh, somewhere in that region, you know, and since they can't really track their lineage anymore because of the destruction of the documents with the destruction of uh, Jerusalem in AD 70, they might not know exactly which part of the land it is from. They, they might not know which tribe they're from, but that land is important because over 3,000 years ago, uh, close, probably closer to 4,000 years ago, when God uh, brought Abraham out of being a moon worshiper and uh, brought him to uh, faith in the true God, that God promised Abraham that this land he was sojourning in would one day belong to his descendants. And uh, then, uh, you know, a couple hundred years passed. I didn't even really realize that until recently, from when Abraham first comes to the land of Canaan until when. Uh, Israel goes to uh, Egypt is like 200 years. Jacob was over 100 years old when uh, he finally went to Egypt. And it's just crazy to think that much time passes as you're reading those chapters in Genesis. But we see the uh, slavery in Egypt. If you're a Christian, I'm assuming most, if not all of the people listening to this episode are Christians because it's a Christian podcast. But you know about Israel's slavery in Egypt. They come out of the promised land 40 years in the wilderness. I'm sorry, they come out of Egypt and then they, after 40 years of wilderness, come to the promised land. They finally get the land that God promised to them. And they're there for several centuries. There's the temporary exile. They come back to the land and then they are departed for this time, basically an almost 2000 year long exile with the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, that is where um, we see Israelites in the last century wanting to return back to their ancestral homeland from their ancestors 2,000 years before. As far as the term Palestine goes, uh, that's actually a term that Rome gave to the land around there. And that term uh, Palestine is related to the older term Phoenician, which is related to an older term Philistine, which people familiar with the Old Testament will recognize the term Philistine. And so, uh, the term Palestine itself is basically a word from the Roman Empire that was related to the Old Testament word Philistine. And uh, I mean, if you read your Old Testament, even back then, Israel and uh, the Philistines were fighting over the land. I mean, David and Goliath, one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament was an Israelite David fighting a Philistine Goliath from Gath. And uh, basically, that's just a little bit of the uh, history there. Are there any notes? Or anything you want to add to that, Jacob? Yeah, just um, the the term didn't originate with the Romans, but the Romans did dub that area and give it more of an official kind of legal standing um, for that, which is why it's continued throughout that. Um, it originally, its first appearance was around 500 BC in the histories by Herodotus, and it referred to kind of part of Assyria. Um, and then eventually over time, uh, by that part of the world, by like the Greeks and stuff, it that area got referred to as Palestine. Um, but that's kind of like um, Japanese people calling uh, Japan the name in their language versus us in English calling it 
uh, Japan. It's the same place, different name by a different group of people. Um, so it doesn't, the, the presence of the name Palestine for that area, even prior to uh, the Romans does not uh, invalidate that it is still, uh, that land is still Israel in God's eyes. Um, and uh, one of the other things, just uh, touching a little bit on the the history of Israel with the um, with the uh, covenant that you talked about, one of the things that I found interesting because there's a big question about whether or not it's still valid with um, with the church being the chosen people of God, but also Israel was the chosen people of God. Um, and it's interesting because in uh, Genesis thirteen fifteen. Uh, it talks about that God is going to give the land to the, uh, him and his offspring forever. Um, and you see that the land is theirs, even when they're disobedient um, and they're stiff-necked and rebellious, that God does not take the land away from them. It's only after a great deal of long suffering that they're eventually deported into the exile. But even then, God brings them back and the land is still there. And then they have to deal with the the Sumerians. Uh, or the Samaritans, I'm sorry. Um, they have to deal with the Samaritans and the troubles and problems that come with that because then they're being reintroduced to their land, but they're also now displacing this other group of people that has uh, grown up and grown into the land. And so um, it, I think it's a natural thing for that conflict to be there. Um, but then, because we don't want to base our theology just on one verse, um, even though it is a direct word from God, in Psalm 105, verses 7 through 11, um, he says that he's going to uh, remember his covenant promise forever, um, that it's going to endure for a thousand generations, and that it's a permanent covenant, um, and that it'll be his inherited, or it'll be uh, the inherited portion. And so just to, like, it is still uh, in the sense of, like, the worldly thing, like they talk about in the Apologia episode, it's, um, like, the Jews are still God's chosen people in the earthly sense, uh, as far as the land claim is concerned. Even though spiritually, we know that the church is true Israel, it's God's chosen people. Um, and so I think Romans uh, 9 through 11 provides a great framework for helping us to, to sort through the kind of thing of like, well, is Israel still God's chosen people? Does God have two sets of chosen people? Yeah, so in the Apology episode does a good job of delving into that, but just for some scriptural references for you to do your own study, listener, um, you you can find those references and uh, study through them. But that's that's pretty much what I got on there. And also there were there was a remnant of Jews living in that area throughout the time from, you know, almost 2000 years ago with the destruction in Jerusalem. It's not like from AD 70 until AD 1948, not a single Jew ever stepped foot in uh, Israel. There were right. still like a small number of them still living there throughout that time. Yeah. And it was in the second century that the uh, during the Bar Kokhba uh, revolt that that's when the emperor, uh, I forget which one it was, um, but the emperor at the time was basically like, he put down the rebellion and the revolt, and he's like, we're going to name it Palestine as uh, besmirching you. So, uh, and then after that point, it basically, life became so untenable for the Jews that they just dispersed throughout the world. 
then, but there were, there was that remnant that still chose to, uh, stay there. And there's a like 15, 1600 years plus of history about the relations of the Jews compared or, uh, to the other groups. So, uh, I think we're getting pretty, pretty bogged down in the history though. So, um, yeah. so getting, uh, more back up to the modern day. So Israel becomes uh, an official state in 1948 and uh, basically has had seemingly no end of battles and fights and skirmishes and wars since then. So do you want to cover some of the things in the past leading up to the most recent one, or do you want to just skip right ahead to what's gone on in the last month? Um, I mean, I did a lot of research into this, uh, but suffice it to say there's there have been a lot of different players and uh, in the region Egypt, Syria, uh, different political groups that have come together with the expressed intention and goal directive of expelling Israel uh, from there, from the land. And so all from 1948 through the 1960s, uh, there was a big whole bunch of conflicts. And then more political or what became basically political parties, as they currently are, uh, ended up uh, forming. So, and these kind of developed into the players that we're seeing now. So, like the PLO, which was the uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization, um, that is important because it eventually, it's still active, but it uh, eventually helped bring about the establishment of the PA, which is the Palestinian Authority. Um, and they, even though the PLO is the parent organization effectively of the PA, um, they, they function kind of one is the PLO is kind of like the international representative of all of the Palestinian people around the world. And the PA is more the domestic state managing the West bank at this time. And they did originally, they did also have control over Gaza but the uh, within the legislature in the uh, the PA, Hamas also, which developed back in like the eighties, I think it's nineteen eighty six. Um, Hamas ended up taking a surprise victory in the legislature back in two thousand six, and so uh, the Ba'ath Party and Hamas uh, basically uh, started having their own effectively civil war. Uh, there was a lot of blood and conflict taking place, and that ended up leading to um, the the Ba'ath Party basically being expelled from Gaza or them pulling out, uh, and Hamas was left in control. So that's why uh, Hamas isn't just some random terrorist organization like ISIS, even though uh, they're saying that Hamas equals ISIS. It, the actual history of it is that they started out kind of as... Uh, to get positioned in Gaza, they started out more as a uh, legislative party. Uh, and then they always had their kind of terrorist side of things about them. But it was when they when they won that election and the Ba'ath Party was removed from Gaza, uh, that's when they took full control over uh, over Gaza, which led to misery for everyone involved. The uh, people who lived in Gaza, for Hamas, for Israel. Quick correction there. Jacob said that Hamas was fighting with the Ba'ath Party, and it should have been the Fatah. 
like the uh the because pretty much as soon as hamas took over in gaza and they were identified as obviously and directly hostile to israel israel went and they literally built a giant blockade wall um around gaza uh to keep people out because uh hamas is hostile to israel and um yeah, so they they ended up doing that. They had uh, a bunch of economic constraints placed on them. Um, so it was very difficult to get food and water out and just really wrecked their economy, which is kind of going into the, the next part. Yeah, with that, I want to give an example from what you're saying and what you have in the notes. It sounds like uh, basically a way to think of it in the U.S. would be if uh, another political party sprung up that was like actually terrorist not like the democrats act like anyone further to the right of bernie sanders is a terrorist but like actually terrorist and uh somehow managed to win a presidential election and then kicked out all the democrats and republicans and made the u.s like this extreme uh what muhammad dreamed of state or something yeah um i i can kind of see that i'm not sure um, that I fully make the the connection on it. But yeah, the the main thing is because they came up as a legitimate party within the uh, within the legislative branch of the PA. But all of all of the stuff has had kind of terrorist expel Israel uh, roots. And so um, one of the reasons why Hamas was so violently opposed to uh, the Ba'ath Party is because they uh, continued to become more secularized. And they continued, they basically dialed back their death to Israel position and they became more uh, at least neutral towards Israel where they weren't trying to actively expel them from the land. And Hamas disagreed with that because they wanted Israel expelled from the land. Um, and so that, that'll that kind of lay the framework and the groundwork for like once the war is done, who's going to take over Gaza because somebody has to take over Gaza. Um, like you can't just leave 2 million people without any kind of, uh, authority or government because whether it develops up from the inside or, uh, something is imposed from the outside, that power vacuum is going to get filled very quickly. And if we know anything about power vacuums from, uh, African countries, uh, and that whole continent that does, n it's very seldom a peaceful rise to power. Um, so there's there's a lot of negative things that can come about from that, especially since there's really no law and order to even help facilitate a peaceful uh, rise to power there. So, yeah, when there's a power vacuum, anyone who thinks he has a shot wants to jump on it with everything he can. Right. And it's usually the people that do that are uh, very violent and murderous and they will do what they can to get ahead. So I can't imagine something from the current conditions. I cannot imagine anything homegrown rising up from Gaza to be uh, to be something good. Um, but we'll we'll cover that a little bit more moving into like when we get to that point of it. So, yeah, just kind of going back into the uh into the conditions that Gaza had um, once the once the wall went up. Basically, by 2020, there was a UN report that came out talking about the economic costs that it said that it uh, resulted in like $16.7 billion. Uh, these are valued at $2015. But basically, from 2007 to 2008, 
um, that the economic cost uh, of Hamas being in control with the restrictions that were imposed cost $16.7 billion. Um, and it also talks about like poverty uh, went from 40% before Hamas took over to 56% at the time. Uh, however, the projections show that it would have been poverty actually by 2017 would have dropped from 40% to 15%. And the poverty gap would have closed, uh, would have gone down to like 4.2% instead of the 20% that it was at the time that the, uh, it, it, the time that the report was done. And the CIA fact book shows that uh, basically every economic metric that you want to see in a country was the opposite of what you want to see. Everything that you want to see as positive was negative and everything you want to see as negative was positive. So there's uh, it, it was very, very uh, bad economic conditions. And just seeing the stuff about if it had just been left alone, if Hamas had not come to power there, um, that they would have been economically much better off kind of goes to show really how bad everything uh, how bad everything got under their control. Yeah, with those numbers you gave, the trends from before Hamas took over pre predicted that the poverty rate would have cut by over half, but instead Correct. it went up by almost 50%. Yes, I had to think about how you were phrasing that. Yes, it jumped sixteen percent. Uh, it jumped sixteen percent to fifty six percent, but of the forty percent, yeah, it's about fifty percent. Yeah. So when it, other if that hadn't have happened, they would have projected it dropping from forty to fifteen. So like dropping by twenty five percent. Right. Yes. Yeah, so that's uh the the economic conditions even before the the war started taking place. Most recently, um, this isn't even to say anything about um, them putting their resources into uh, weapons. There were stories coming out about um, that there's a link to North Korea with, and I saw this uh, probably about a week ago, so I don't know if it's still valid, um, but there's uh, there were concerns that North Korea had sold them some weapons. There were concerns about Iran um, helping fund and do some assistance. One of the guys that I talk with that works in uh, counterterrorism, uh, his uh, personal assessment of the situation is he wasn't sure if it was Iran that was helping him, but he did not believe that um, he didn't believe that they could pull it off on their own from his experience um, for what that's worth. Yeah, I've heard some people say they don't think this is true, but I can't help but wonder if uh... Russia did a little bit of backing this to try to get people's eyes and minds off of Ukraine right now and to be a distraction. Um, I definitely do not think it would have been resources that they could have put towards it. Um, I mean, they might have given some political leverage and maneuvering, but given the uh, Russian meat grinder that's been taking place and how how much they've been uh, getting pushed down, I can't imagine um, that they really have the energy to do it, even if they wanted to. Because it has taken over the news cycle, um, getting the eyes off Ukraine and stuff. So, um, so kind of looking at where their economy is at right now, I mean, you look out there, the infrastructure is completely decimated. Really, the only parallel, uh, like there's no there's no economic activity that's taking place there. 
uh, except for what might be classified as like black market stuff um, where people are either doing shady things uh, in order to uh, get what they need to get resources and stuff, or um, it's just like very basic bartering in order to trade for uh, bare subsistence, if that. So there's there's probably that level of economic stuff going on, but there's definitely nobody who's going to work for an employer right now that's out there. Um, nobody's making things really. Um, so their economy is pretty much dead. Um, there and there's nothing to support it because the infrastructure has been completely wiped out. And um, the only parallel that I can think of, I'm not an economic historian, but uh, the only parallel I can think of is with this much damage is uh, when the when the bomb was dropped on Japan, um, where just entire areas were leveled. Now, obviously, that's not a complete comparison because there was still a lot of surrounding. Um, a lot of surrounding parts of the country that were not affected by that to to uh help rebuild but um yeah there's the the level of destruction is hard to hard to match in recent history yeah and another thing uh related to that is uh, not just the loss of economic activity in Gaza since 2006 but then also, especially right now, with, as you said, basically a dead economy. Well, we can also talk about the economic effects it's having having rippling across the country as uh, you have people basically, people sending in their support. It might be uh, individuals sending money or it might be governments and it might be sending money to, um, you know, to individuals in uh, Israel trying to get them supplies knowing that how hard things are for some of them especially the areas that were hit i don't even know what efforts are going on if any to try to actually get supplies to uh anyone and uh anyone living where hamas is ruling that's you know innocent as far as this goes and i mean i don't even know how you would actually try to get those people supplies without hamas getting it first and taking it like I hear people, you know, try to send money to third world countries in Africa and half the money ends up getting used to build mansions for the uh, politicians while the people are still living on the brink of starvation. But basically all of that, trying to send aid and relief and medical supplies and stuff like that to the people being affected. And then also all of the money being spent on uh, military supplies in order to uh, support the uh, defense of Israel and that. Since I mentioned the defense of Israel, I just want to take a moment there to say uh, whether or not you agree with how Israel came to become a state in 1948, it came to become a state. And if a nation is attacked, that nation has the right to defend itself. So I just kind of want to say that. Is there anything you want to add to that point that I just mentioned there? Um, yeah, just uh, I mean, on the on the they are a state kind of thing. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, at least for as Christian political scientists, um, one of the things, or Christians in general, um, that we find is that God establishes all authorities. He's the one that establishes all states, um, whether or not, I mean, Stalin's Russia was established by God for his purposes. Nazi Germany, many atrocities established by God for his purposes. Do we know what those purposes were necessarily? No, we don't understand them. But we do know that God is the one that establishes those authorities. And some people will say, well, God allowed them. And it's like, well, 
I mean, I suppose you can say he allowed them, but really, unless God had established them and continued to sustain them, um, they would not have um, they would not have continued to persist because God's sovereignty is too too ingrained into the everyday functions of the universe for something to be allowed. And then unless God is actively sustaining it um, by common grace, then I mean, that's one of the things like with um, the situation with Hamas is that with as terrible as the economic conditions were there, there was a lot of aid that was being sent, um, humanitarian aid, like 90% of the drinking water or 90% of the water was not drinkable there. And the fact that they managed to stay in power for that long when the entire country or the entire land mass is basically destitute, it, it really is it would have to be an act of God for them to stay in power and for that situation to persist as long as it has. And that doesn't mean that those groups uh, are not actively working against God, that they don't hate God, but every uh, every authority that's been established since the beginning of creation has been established because God has established it. Um, and that's what, uh, that's as Christians, we find out basically which states are established by God by looking at how, uh, if they've persisted. So we discover this over the course of time. Um, so with that little aside, um, getting back to the economic aspects of this too, one thing I wanted to mention is not just all the horrible things economically keeping people on the brink of starvation going on in Gaza and what has been going on for going on 20 years now you know 2006 17 years but also um you know not just what i mentioned with individuals and families sending their hard-earned money in order to help with the relief efforts governments sending taxpayer dollars in order to help with relief efforts and military efforts but also just the loss of economic growth the loss of potential economic growth through the lack of trade for mm -hmm. all of these years that Israel has had that wall and that breach, that you know separation there with Gaza, I mean, you know, think about here in the U.S. We have all these trade agreements like NAFTA because we recognize that if U.S. and Canada and Mexico all freely trade with one another, all three of us are better off. Well, if the U.S., Canada, and Mexico had really strict rules that we would never trade with each other, not even just like we'd put high tariffs on it or something like we would just never trade with each other, period. That would have really kept all three economies from growing as much as they have. And so even short of uh, the attacks that we have seen on Israel lately, even before then, just the lack of trade with nations around you will hurt the economies of everyone involved. Right. I When I was looking through the CIA factbook, I think they... Uh their largest sector was like textiles and it's basically things that you don't need much of anything to do. Um, like you, you can, they, people have been able to make it for thousands of years without really any kind of machinery. So machinery makes it easier, but yeah, like they, they really have nothing there. They have two, well, I don't know at this point, it's hard to tell for the population, but before the war started, they had 2 million people in a 15 by 25 mile landmass that was completely cut off. Israel controls the waters along the coast, so they don't even have the ability to trade uh, through there. 
yeah, so like it's it's been a rough uh, a rough time for everyone involved. Yeah, that part especially makes it hard for them trying. I mean, if they had a decent government that wasn't, you know, terrorist and everything, trying to figure out how to be an economic power when, oh, I'm on the Mediterranean Sea. That seems like a great idea to try to exploit what I can do being on the Mediterranean Sea for my economic advantage. But no, that didn't actually really help them at all. Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things that uh, need to be done when looking at like the paths forward to um, to economic recovery or even becoming an, an economic powerhouse um, is they need to get a proper state in there that's going to at least be uh, neutral, if not supportive of the state of Israel. Um, so that way, because Israel clearly outclasses them and we've seen with the, the barrier that they built up that even... Israel just totally leaving them alone um, and making it so that way they cannot interact with Israel was devastating to their economy. So they need to at least have a proper state in there that has um, uh, that's on friendly terms or is at least neutral with Israel. Um, and then they need to make sure that whatever government is in there is stable, um, that they're not going to have to deal with a bunch of revolts that come through. Uh, and they need to uh, make sure that they have uh, strong protections for property rights um, and things like that, so people can actually, so people can actually uh, lay claim to the property that it's a, a safe place to uh, for people to put their money because there's a lot of people sending foreign aid and stuff. Um, but we want what we really want to see is people sending uh, investments there, so that way. Um, there's actually people are putting money in there. There's actual wealth being created um, because realistically, the only way that you ever get out of um, the only way you ever get out of poverty is by creating more wealth. Um, so that way there is more wealth to go around. And as you uh, sell off the wealth that you've created, you end up being compensated monetarily through that typically. Basically, what you just said is they need to adopt the Christian worldview, which connects to your next point. Amen. They they do need to do that indeed. Um, but I do not think that uh, I, I definitely agree with that. I don't think, though, that that's uh, exclusive to the Christian worldview, um, but I definitely think that is within the Christian worldview. But um, there's plenty of other states that do not necessarily maintain a Christian worldview, that they have those basic elements um, and they're still able to uh, produce decent wealth um, and they're not poverty stricken. We see Japan did a lot of adopting Christian ideas related to economics, including the Protestant work ethic. And they did a lot to really go from basically nothing to a world superpower. Although, since they're not a Christian nation, Christianity is basically nothing there. I have a friend who's a missionary to, to Japan, and it's just, there's so few Christians there. Because they have basically the Protestant work ethic without Christianity, they've kind of gone to an extreme and that is related to things that, that's related to stuff like the suicide rates in Japan today and the feeling of hopelessness and stuff like that. Right. And we could do like a whole, there's a whole bunch of thing about like zombified companies out there. And so we could actually do like a whole, or you, you could do, I don't know that I'm, <laughs> I don't know that you want to bring me on for that, but uh, we, the, a whole episode or more could be done just on the, the economics of Japan um, and a lot of the stuff going on there. 
um, with the work ethic and the suicides and why they've adopted certain parts of the uh, the Christian work ethic, but not necessarily uh, the whole worldview. Um, and that gets into a lot of history and stuff there. Um, but hey, that makes two of us. We both have friends that are missionaries out in Japan. So so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty bleak place, but it is a place where uh, the suicide rates emphasize uh, a lot of despair and a, a big desire for uh, hope. And so uh, the Christian can offer a lot of hope through Christ uh, for those people. So uh, one of the things uh, as well for those readers who want to get, or for the listeners who want to get a little bit more into like the economics of like how to create wealth. Um, one of the books that I went through, Money, Greed, and God uh, by J.W. Richards. Um, he's a Christian economist as well as an analytic philosopher. Um, but he talks um, he talks about basically the importance of having a government that has strong protections and enforcement of contracts and private property and stuff. And what it has to do with is Basically, if you if you can't prove that something is yours to put down as collateral for a loan or something that you can use as uh, money to invest in your business and grow it and create wealth, then banks or whoever is lending you that or who would lend you that money is not going to trust that the investment they would make with you is secure. So because a lot of people will work land that they can't prove that they actually own, they can't put that up as collateral. So they stay very uh, focused on the short term, uh, rather than being able to know that their property is secure and they can focus on long-term investments, building, um, generational or dynastic wealth. And so that's one of those things, why it's so important to have those strong protections for private property, because it allows people to actually have, uh, low time preferences, which, uh, low time preference basically means you can wait a while for things to pay off uh, in order to have that gratification um, or you you do everything with a low time preference. I need it now. I have to have it um, at this time. So you pay more um, effectively. And basically all of that is related to the idea of, though I don't expect this to happen, God's done stuff like this before. Like the best thing for Gaza would be a Nineveh-like repentance that Amen. brings about, I mean, everything wouldn't be perfect. You know, you don't get saved and immediately become perfectly sanctified, though that would be really nice if that was the case. I think uh, one of the main reasons God doesn't do that is our sanctification glorifies him as we choose him over sin. But it would uh, be kind of the best case scenario is, yeah, if we just see, like you said, amen to that, like a Nineveh-like revival in uh, Gaza. And, you know, then we just fly them a whole airplane full of Gary North books. Right. Uh, but we do want it to have more uh, more lasting power than the Nineveh revival. Yeah. Um, because I hope this they, one would uh, last they, over a century. They, uh, they ended up getting judged afterwards because they fell back. But the ones that repented, that was good. And yeah, I mean, and it comes down to it really that if if that was to happen, that really would be the best outcome because the nations that honor God, God blesses them whether it's Israel specifically, or if it's America or Canada or Russia or China or whatever. If, if a nation honors God, God is going to, um, going to bless them in accordance with his promises. Um, and we even see that in second uh, Samuel, I think it's, or no, it's first uh, Samuel chapter two, verse 30 something, uh, where God says that I will dishonor those who dishonor me and I will honor those who honor me. 
So uh, there, there is a, a reciprocity in there, but it's also a promise that if you don't honor God, you're, you can expect trouble. Yeah. And I think some of the ways God does that is supernatural, but I also think some of it is just the way God made the world. When you mm -hmm. obey his rules, just the natural way, the natural processes by which God made the world will generally make things work out better for you without even God divinely intervening to make things better or worse for you in your situation. Right. I think, and I, I think that gets into a little bit of the, the hard versus soft determinism as well, because like a hard determinist would say that God is basically, God is actively working through um, those conditions or whatever. He's actively bringing stuff about in there to bless you, even though he's working through the natural processes that he's built into that because he could he could cause them to stop or things that we say is like oh you have a chance for this to go through um or there's a probability of something working out that god is then choosing whether or not to bring that to success or not and so i i tend to to take more of the hard determinist approach on that that uh, god is actively working in those events um and through those processes but um, in so much as we honor him. Mm -hmm. And I know you're more of a compatibilist, as you said. So uh, these are fighting words, right? <laughs> I mean, I think if we looked at what compatibilism teaches, I think you'd probably line up with compatibilism pretty well. Yeah, I, I don't know how much I'm just, I'm being silly. So yeah. So uh, the last thing from that uh, book by uh, Richards in the uh, in the appendices, he actually has like uh, a 10 step, kind of plan the the listeners can go find a copy of the book um but he basically details these are the 10 things that need to happen um and so those are those will basically be prerequisites for if god uh for if gaza wants to have a solid economic recovery and again yeah it's going to depend on what uh what state gets in there there's a lot of uh different options that could take place on that one of those things is, uh, like I was saying, that uh, the Palestinian Authority, they could uh, be put back in charge in there, Israel, because they're not hostile to Israel, uh, and they already have basically a history in the territory. They could be let back in there in order to be the uh, ruling authority. Uh, something homegrown could pop up, but we already kind of talked about why that's not a good, probably not going to be a good thing. And then there's also a... Uh, uh, Israel could annex Gaza. They could basically just take over it um, and bring that in. And then there's also um, uh, like a security authority that it's been talked about them wanting to put in place uh, or a third party government like Egypt or some other group could, some other group of nations or something could come in and establish an authority in there. Realistically at this point, based on what I've seen, um, I'm thinking that the a most immediate thing that's going to happen once the war is finished is that Israel is going to attempt to uh, put in the security authority because they said that's what they want to do. Um, and they've also said they don't want responsibility for the 2 million Palestinians that are in there. And so because that's a lot of people to try to integrate and all of a sudden your population grows by 2 million literally in a day, that's massive. And so even just from a logistical standpoint, um, I don't think any nation wants to take in 2 million additional uh, people all of a sudden. Especially if a large portion of them are pretty against everything you stand for and even just your people as an ethnic group. Well, I mean, 
Yeah, it's and it's hard to say at this point what the opinion is of the people in Gaza because I'm pretty sure they hate the fact that they're being bombed into annihilation. But at the same time, uh, depending on if they recognize that the reason that this is happening is because of Hamas, like they may actually be more supportive of Israel uh, when things finally settle, if Israel is friendly towards them, if Israel is supportive of them. So that way it's not like we're we're going to come in and try to basically wipe you out or further like to oppress them or something like you want to have good politics going into that situation. But I think that's also part of why Israel doesn't want to take responsibility for them. They want to just let them be, but they also understand that you can't just completely leave them alone because of that homegrown element that might uh, come up. So my thoughts are kind of that that's going to happen. Uh, the security uh, authority will be put in place, and then the uh, the Palestinian authority will be the the longstanding one that will come in and basically uh, rule domestically in that area. Yeah, I think part of something the listeners are picking up now is we're not basically saying, oh, it's really easy. Here's the best solution that everyone should do. Like there are a lot of factors there are a lot of things that we just don't know because we're not there and we didn't grow up there. So we don't know the culture. So even if we were there right now, we don't, you know, we didn't grow up there. And it's just, he is like, here are ideas. Here's the best case scenario, even though it's really unlikely. Here's things that would make it a lot worse. And basically, war is evil. And uh, there is no, oh, here's a sunshine and rainbow solution to war. Right. And if they didn't get that before, they have now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, so I mean, the politics in the Middle East is very volatile. And that's in a lot of ways, that's because uh, the the Westphalian state system and the liberal international order that we have has basically been overlaid into that area without regard or respect for what was there before that was brought in. Um, and we see this in African countries a lot too, um, where the that system has been overlaid over that without any regard for the cultural or tribal differences or anything like that. And then you layer the uh, the biblical claim and the all the different claims that come to the land of Israel, like you're there's going to be tension and it's a fallen world. So even if everybody would wanted to sing Kumbaya, like it's a fallen world there's going to be evil that we have to deal with um yeah so then you can't really and that's one of the the amazing things about the market is that you can't really control how it's going to develop like it it will develop on its it it, it develops decentrally and so if you try to give like a, here's a 100% going to fit perfectly for your situation and context, it's not going to, because the market is an emergent phenomenon that um, comes out of the collective action of the participants that are engaging. And as, as one person makes a decision that then changes the options, either uh, adding additional options or removing options for what other actors can do. And so it it's something that you can't provide a hundred percent solution for, but you can provide parallels from history, uh, similarities, uh, like 
China or not China. Um, I always say China, Japan, uh, like uh, Japan or Singapore. Those are two parallels that have different aspects that can be helpful with helpful lessons of how they can move forward. But context context develops and context plays a huge role in how they will be able to move forward building their economy. Yeah. So, I mean, a big thing out of there is assuming that like one of the third party places like Egypt or something doesn't absorb Gaza either, then they're pretty much going to be left on their own with whatever authority is put in there. And so they're going to kind of be like uh, either Singapore, very similar uh, population numbers, very similar land mass, and also a very similar lack of any form of natural resources um, to do anything. So they have a lot of people and very few resources. Um, and if we if they follow like what Singapore did under Lee Kuan Yew, then they're going to want to make sure that uh, the infrastructure is rebuilt. They put out a very strong image of like, this is a safe place to invest. Um, it's a safe place to put your money. You're going to get a good return on investment uh, if you put money here. Um, now, obviously they have a lot of image control to do uh, and a lot of infrastructure to rebuild. And so there has to, that's one of the major roles that whatever state goes in there is going to play is that kind of offering those protection for foreign investors uh, to see that when they put their money here, it's not just going to get blown up again because of another war. Um, like nobody wants to invest in the middle of a war zone. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we need to make sure that uh, whatever state or they need to make sure whatever state goes in there um, is going to provide stability for for the, the people there and the investors. And then they they can basically do similar to what Singapore did, which was they... They used their labor. They um, made it so that way that they they supplied a large labor force, and that was uh, a major part of what allowed them to grow their economy. I mean, in addition to things like rooting out corruption and making sure there were very strict penalties, um, Singapore is one of the few examples uh, throughout history where like a very authoritarian regime actually produced a lot of economic prosperity because they controlled they had very heavy social controls on what people could do in order to maintain that manicured atmosphere. Uh, and that it was basically their national survival was dependent upon everything looking good and safe. And so they were able to do that. But uh, one of my friends who's actually a professor of economics, he described it as a, a giant HOA. So it's a giant nation Island HOA. And I was like, Oh, that's a, that's a good description of that. And then the other one, as far as uh, rebuilding goes, the like I mentioned before, the the big parallel uh, for like just total destruction uh, is Japan, actually, which is another island nation where they uh, had a lot of destruction that they had to rebuild. And so I think uh, taking the lessons from what Japan was able to do, taking that uh, the additional uh, resources that were invested to them. Uh, to focus on building up large manufacturing, uh, large export policies, things like that, that get uh, people to want to come to them for goods and, and services that they, they want to make sure that they're able to be the go-to place for that. And if they can get 
if they whatever state is there is on friendly terms with Israel, then they will also more likely have access to their coast to actually get ships in and out for trade. So that's another reason why they want to make sure that they have um, why they're on good relations uh, with Israel. So that way um, they can have free freedom of egress uh, to be able to get in and out of there and actually utilize that 25 mile strip of coast. Yeah. So that was really good, Jacob. Uh, one thing I wanted to add uh, here at the end, uh, because I don't think we've said enough to uh, get us canceled yet. So I should probably say that. Um. By the way, before I say this, I just want to say I love uh, Muslims. Muslims are like my favorite people to evangelize because like they are actually cool with talking about religion and uh, most other people aren't. And uh, I don't know, they just they're fun people to talk to about the Bible and stuff because they have some regard for the Bible. They think it was like twisted and stuff, but they have some regard for it. So it's easier to get into gospel conversation with them than other people. So with all that saying, like saying all that before I go forward with this, at the end of the day, Islam is what's caused this. Yes, there are a lot of different sects of Islam, some more peaceful than others, but Muhammad himself said he wasn't sure if he was good enough to make it into heaven or their view of heaven since Islam is a religion of works. And uh, basically the only way you are guaranteed to know you will make it into heaven as a Muslim is to die in jihad and a good way to make sure you die in jihad is to blow yourself up that's where the concept of suicide bombers comes from and so when there are concepts like that in a religion it will make there basically always be an issue with terrorists um so terrorists aren't like radical muslims or radical islamists or whatever people want to say they're just people that basically take muhammad at his word and saying, uh, you know, a lot and, and a lot basically picks and chooses with his grace. When you look at the Hadith and the Quran, one guy, his only good work was saying the Shahada, but Allah decided to let him into heaven. But there can be another guy who had a lot of good works, but Allah decided they weren't good enough. So in Islam, Allah basically has his hand on the scales of your good works versus your bad works, basically based on, I guess, how he's feeling at the moment he's judging you. And that really just makes it appealing to die in a jihad by being a suicide bomber or something in order to make sure you go to heaven and your Islamic beliefs. So that's kind of on the more terrorist side of it. But on the economic side of it, Islam is not a religion that allows for uh, intellectual development like Christianity because it's a Unitarian religion. Christianity is a Trinitarian religion and uh, I'm uh, not getting into all the philosophical stuff that I don't know as much yet as I want to, but I have a couple books on it. The Trinity solves a philosophical problem of uh, the one and the many. And through that and other things, it makes Christianity through that and through ideas like the Protestant work ethic, a much greater place for intellectual and uh, business development. And that's where uh, a nation that embraces Islam is stunted in its growth by the potential for terrorism, but also stunted in its growth by lack of a Trinitarian Christian worldview. And so we should be praying for uh, people in Gaza to come to faith in Christ and based on that Christian worldview to want to uh, see the good of their neighbor by providing goods and resources 
for sale that benefit themselves as the one selling them, but also benefit the one purchasing the goods and services as whatever happens in the coming months happens. And whenever everything is said and done, Gaza has to be rebuilt in whatever way rebuilding looks like. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It uh, definitely makes me just what you're talking about there with the the selective uh, you get into heaven makes me very appreciative that we can trust God at his word. And he says uh, that apart from your works, you're saved, that if you place your faith in Christ, um, that you will be saved. And just the the fact that we're given that promise, we know we can trust uh, him at his word. It also helps to remove the fear of like, well, what if I don't do enough? Well, you can't do enough, but Christ can and has and will continue to do enough. So yeah, that's that that actually makes me warms my heart to to kind of hear and realize that. And that's one of the other things, uh, like what you mentioned with the the terrorism linked to simply taking Muhammad at his word, lived religion makes a big difference in the way that uh, in the listeners that they want to look more into it can look it up. But uh, lived religion is the topic where it's basically people are living out the religion they profess. So it's not just something that's been intellectually internalized or they intellectually assent to, but um, the dictates of their religion or their faith actually drives how they uh, function and behave. And so any solution economically for that region needs to account for whatever the lived religion is. Because during the the whole time that we were in the Middle East um, after 9-11, we thought that we were going to go in there and we thought they all wanted the same thing as us as far as like the way they phrase it is liberal democracy. Like everybody wants liberal democracy, but that doesn't account for any of their culture uh, the lived religion or anything of that nature. And so much like I was saying, like with the the state system that's been put there uh, in Africa, that it's been overlaid without respect to any of that, it's it will dramatically affect whatever solution and how those solutions develop. So we should be praying for peace in the area. We should be praying for uh, stability. And most of all, like you were saying, we should be praying for for them to come to faith in Christ. And that would go for the Jews too. Um, I think that if both of them were, if both of them turned to Christ, there would be a significant reduction in a lot of the violence there on the internet. We always have different groups of Christians calling them, calling each other heretics. So they wouldn't get rid of all, uh, all uh, conflict, but the violent conflict that tends to uh, hurt economic growth and development, I believe would largely cease to persist, um, which is why you should actively be praying for everyone that's over there. All right. Thanks for listening to the episode. There near the end, I talked a little bit about evangelism to Muslims. I kind of mentioned that in passing before talking about some stuff about Islam. And so if you want more information from a Christian perspective about Islam, there are some people you can listen to. First and foremost on this subject, I recommend uh, Dr. James White. He has his book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. He also has had, I don't know how many episodes of The Dividing Line, talking about Islam. You can go onto Sermon Audio or the YouTube channel, listen to those. 
the YouTube channel probably only goes back like 10 years or something. Sermon Audio goes back to 1998 before he even started talking about Islam. Because I think that really picked up in like 2005 or 2006. So he's a good resource. There are some other people that I think are good resources as well. Personally, I think David, sorry, James White is better than the other two I'm about to mention. Uh, David Wood does have uh, some stuff about Islam. I started learning about Islam first from him before I got into listening to James White. At the time I first started listening to David Wood, I wasn't a Calvinist yet and preferred the KJV and didn't like James White for being a Calvinist and talking about textual criticism and how that relates to uh, the KJV and modern translations. But um, David Wood has a lot of good information about Islam. He also is, I don't know what adjective to say, weird sometimes about Islam, crazy maybe. Um, meaning like the Islamicize Me videos and stuff like that he made. So be careful with some of the stuff he has to say. But he has a lot of good info too and I learned from him. Nabil Qureshi has put out a lot of uh, stuff about Islam since he was a Muslim before he came to faith in Christ. And then he went on to his reward a handful of years ago now. Uh, one thing with him, he uh, was not Sunni or Shia, which are the most prevalent forms or sects of Islam. He was Ahmadiyya and uh, Muslims look at Ahmadiyya the way that Christians look at like Jehovah's Witnesses or a kind of split off 18th century fracture cultic group like that. So Sunni and Shia Muslims would make up the vast majority of Muslims would not view David Wood as uh, a genuine Muslim before he uh, left Islam and uh, put his faith in God and the gospel. Correction, Nabil Qureshi is the former Muslim, not David Wood. David Wood never was a Muslim. I just said the wrong name there by accident. So to a Muslim, if you try to like name drop Nabil Qureshi or something, they'd probably look at you the way you would if an atheist tried to name drop some dude that used to be a Jehovah's Witness. And you're like, well, okay, I didn't think he was a Christian when he was a Jehovah's Witness. I don't think he's a Christian now that he's an atheist either. So um, that being said, though, Nabil Qureshi still has good information. He wrote a few books that can be helpful. And so, yeah, those three guys, especially the first one I mentioned, James White, have good resources on Islam if you want to learn more about that. And then if you want some other podcasts you can listen to to dive a little bit more into uh, this whole thing going on right now in the Middle East, I mentioned a couple already. Dr. Aaron Rock's Leadership Now episode on it, Apologia's episode on it, then some others, uh, the Stories Are Soul Food episode that Andy Wilson and his co-host did on it. They talked about this topic for like the first half of the episode and then some other stuff in the second half. Um, the Cross-Politic guys have talked about it. There's a lot of good Christian podcasts out there addressing this subject if you want to go into uh, more detail that we didn't cover in this episode because it was only an hour and we were trying to focus more on economics. So that was this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends.
to skip that theology and some other theology. <laughs> and, uh, let's see. Um, and we're going to skip that too, even though I wanted to include that. Um, and obviously you can, uh, you can cut out my mumblings as I sort through. I don't think anybody wants to, to listen to that. Um, let's see. Current economy destroyed. <laughs> 